Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. It's the cost of a donation, so and, and we purposely did not put a minimum on that because if you're willing to invest the time, if you're motivated enough to take three hours from a Saturday, that should be open to anybody who's willing to, to show up and turn on Zoom. And, and I, I just feel really strongly about that, that things need to be more accessible. Accessibility is a huge social justice issue. And it's part of social justice that I don't think we're talking about enough. And today's guest is Anna Shermatz. Anna reached out to me because she started a training program for therapists and social workers called Thanks, which is therapists helping and nourishing knowledge sharing. And this is a monthly, at least one a month thing where for the cost of a donation to a nonprofit, you can get these trainings. Our conversation is mainly centered around how difficult these trainings are to access unless you have money and a lot of time. So she started them on Saturdays, and it's affordable, as I just said. So be sure to listen to this conversation. There's obviously a lot of things that need to change in our healthcare system and how we deal with mental health and substance use and all that. This is one piece of it, and I love it. So check it out. All the links are below. You can watch the old trainings online. You can also see the schedule for the new trainings. So follow the link below. If you are a therapist and social worker, listen to this and check the trainings out. Because if anybody's like me in their profession, they are constantly trying to get better at it. And this is the most affordable way to do it. Links below. Check it out. Love you guys. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace. Yeah, I have a lot of passion on it. So, um... yeah, you know, that's that's a, it's kind of a, a point for me because even throughout my my rehab stay my short-term rehab my long-term rehab i got less attention from my counselors all the time because i was doing better than everybody else and so i had less time and i mean luckily i was in the mindset of my only goal was to fix and work on what i needed to work on so i was doing a lot of stuff on my own constantly and that's what kind of kept me ahead of the game but people had to take on more other people and less time with me because of the fact they were over overworked and that was kind of our main point when we last talked was there is not enough talk around the vicarious trauma the compassion fatigue and all of that stuff right it, and and it's a systemic problem people have you know you you kind of have to triage but if there's if there's not support you can't just always triage mm-hmm be, because then people who who are doing well enough never get the the treatment they need and deserve. Mm-hmm. People deserve effective mental health treatment. No, we do, we do. So what's what's uh? I guess we don't have a, a solution yet, but we're trying to find one, right? So where do we where do we start with that, Anna? So if it was all up to me, <laughs> I I think it starts with training and support of staff, especially 
people who are working in community mental health programs, I think caseloads are way, way, way too high and that it takes a long time to get good at this work and that people don't really um, validate that. Mm. It's, it's really difficult to say, you know, I have my master's degree, I've done these internships, I maybe have a little bit of professional experience, but I'm struggling and I'm, I'm plagued with imposter syndrome. So what do I do? I don't think people make space for those conversations. And it, it's a disservice to everybody because I've never met a mental health professional who felt like I knew exactly what to do their first couple years. Mm. That kind of goes along. My One of my best buddies I went to high school with, he's been a great friend since seventh grade. He just became a teacher two years ago, funny enough, in the high school he went to. And his first year of teaching, I got teachers all around me, Christine, you know, my girlfriend of seven years, my mom, my sister, they're all teachers. And I bring that up because his first year, it was a mess. <laughs> And almost mm -hmm. anything you do when you first start, it's a mess. It's a disaster. And you have to work on your system and how you're going to do things and how you can do your job the best to your ability. Mm -hmm. And even more pressure comes on that, right? When you have other people's mental health, other people's livelihood at stake, you have more pressure. And as you said, there's I think training is a great point for that. I, I think training and mentorship that when when people are new to this field, we need to to nurture that because it's a calling. I don't know anybody who pursues this as a profession who does not feel pulled to it, that just like this desire to help. And I, I think that needs to be nurtured because it's really vulnerable in the beginning. So if it was all up to me, it would be mentoring, training, support. You know, um, a lot of agencies have started having training and conversations around being trauma-informed, but they don't talk about being vicariously trauma-informed, mm -hmm. which which would allow them to really have conversations with their staff around what do you all need? What would you say like the biggest differences are before trauma-informed and vicarious trauma-informed? How do you go about making that difference and teaching that difference and everything else? So I would say that trauma-informed is typically around how things are interpreted by the consumer. Okay. And making sure that the consumer has a really good experience, that they feel understood. Vicarious trauma is about the, the staff, the organization. What do the therapists need? Even, you know, like, what do the secretaries need? Who The person who mm -hmm. answers the phone and somebody just got shot out of a cannon and is like, I'm having this crisis or my child is having this crisis. What do I do to, to make sure people don't get affected by that? Because people do. People get jaded and cynical and burned out. And we don't have those conversations when it would be really helpful to have them. We have them when somebody complains about the secretary of like, she had a huge attitude with me and I want to talk to your supervisor. Hmm. <laughs> We're such a reactant society. I was just having this conversation with somebody. We're such a reactant society in everything we do. We don't give two craps about anything until it happens to us, and then we want to do something about it. It's never preventative, and it goes everywhere in every issue, I feel like, in the world. The planet. Oh, we'll take care of it when it's half dead and none of us can barely live on it. We'll start taking care of it. That It's just it's ridiculous how we do that. We'll wait till somebody complains about their counselor after they've been burnt out for how many months because they can't handle 
they haven't been trained well enough to how to handle or leave things at the door when they walk out. And I, I just, I guess right now I feel an overwhelming, like there's so much that needs to change. It's almost overwhelming. It is. And I, I think that's a real conversation to have around, you know, that, that paralysis of where, where do we start? Mm-hmm. And that some, sometimes it's the ability to say massive imperfect action I like that a lot. Massive imperfect action. You know, there's rarely an obvious like start here <laughs> with anything, yeah. You, you you just, you know, start somewhere and and when you start somewhere, you then get a much better idea about like, well, this is actually like the the thing that pulls all the strings. I, and that I think that's uncomfortable people really overthink things and when when you get caught in that loop, it's really hard to do anything. Yeah, I'm a I'm a master of that. <laughs> <laughs> o- overthinking and then uh, I can't make a decision now. Oh, my Lord. So you started these training sessions each month. And I know you, I think you said the last one you just had, which we'll get into more of that and, you know, the topics coming up and all that. Obviously, one of the biggest points of us talking is to promote that. But I know you said the last one you just said was on vicarious trauma, correct? Yes, we we did an in-service for the mental health teams at um, the Seneca Nation of Indians. Okay, so what what does um what does like that training session look like when when you set that up? Obviously now it's all on Zoom and everything, but what are some of the, like the main points that you try to get across to people? Is it just bringing awareness to it, like hey, we have to start being aware of this, or do you get into how how do you handle it? So some of it is psychoed. Okay. That th- this is what it is. I would argue with anybody that any job that you spend more than two hours a day interacting with people runs the risk of vicarious trauma because some people are are just emotionally bleeding all over the place. You know, people spill their guts to their hairstylist and the babysitter and, and people that you just come into contact with. And that it's natural to be affected by that. It's actually part of our biology. It's what allows us to have relationships that when you tell me something terrible that you've experienced, you don't trust me if I don't show the fact that like, oh my God, that's horrible. And and that it's like this sticky residue. The the bet I'm a very visual thinker. And I think about it the way I think about a kid. Like if a kid is dirty and has been playing outside all day and they fall down and they're crying they need a hug that's what they need but the person who's their caregiver the person who's there to help is gonna get dirty they're gonna get like this sticky residue on them as part of being the helper yeah i believe the analogy you used when we talked a couple days ago was the peanut butter and jelly kid who just got done eating the sandwich and wants to give you a hug and i loved that that analogy because I mean, that's true. You're going to help somebody. You're going to be there for them. But, you know, you're going to you can't help but be affected by it. You can't help but get peanut butter and jelly on your shirt. And and that, you know, the the bad news is that vicarious trauma is a it's part of the recipe that if you work with people, you're very likely to be affected by it. The good news is that vicarious resilience is at least as real. Hmm. And that's really around, you know, self-care and hope and the management of things so i'm not it's it's taking it in and then releasing it if if i don't have what i need 
at work or in my personal life to release it, I'm, I'm eventually going to drown in that suffering that I'm carrying with me. I remember, I think I was what, 26 or so when I came across a video on empathetic mirror neurons or whatever, and how neuropsychologists and neuroscientists did all the brain scans and all that. And you could see, you know, the same parts of the brain lighting up when somebody who actually experienced the act, whether it was a traumatic experience or not, the same parts of the brain. And I just remember thinking, you know, it's kind of when I first really discovered how empathetic I could be and really I can take on people's energy and it made me a recluse. <laughs> it, it's, it's biology. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it really is about survival of the species that if, if thousands of years ago, when we were all hanging out in very small hunter gatherer tribes, if you saw somebody get mauled by a lion and you ran back to the village and you were acutely traumatized, everyone who hears your story hmm. is two thirds traumatized, but everybody learns like nobody's allowed over there because that's where the lions hang out. And we pass on that information to our kids to try to keep them safe. But that changes how we interact with the world. Mm. And that when, when you get a lot of that, the world doesn't feel safe. People don't feel safe. I'm changing behavior in a, in a more extreme way because I'm on overload. And what, what do you do at Shermat's Counseling with your, your clinicians? to make sure they're always aware and always kind of staying on top of their empathy fatigue and vicarious trauma and all that other weight that comes along with being a clinician. So I, I think I would like to think we do a lot. Um, probably the biggest thing that we do is that we give clinicians complete control over their caseload. So if you have, if you have um, people who need more intensive treatment, you can always tell me, no questions asked, I'm not taking new people for a while. And I think that that is very, very protective of everybody's mental health. When, when you can say, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit, that, that more water is not thrown on top of you. <laughs> yeah. We also provide monthly trainings. And I, I do think that when people are are more thoroughly trained. Not that it's not still heavy what you're hearing, but it's sort of like, I've got the map, like, mm -hmm. like we're, we're in the forest of despair, but I have a map, <laughs> I know I know what to do. And that when, when people feel really confident of, I know what to do, and part of knowing what to do is, when do I shoot up the flare of like, Anna, I need an hour of consultation or, you know, I really want more intensive training on this topic that that's provided for you. We, we do a lot of continuing education. We do monthly trainings that are open to okay. anybody for the cost of a donation. We also do in-house trainings where um, they're very thorough. Well, I know one of your biggest things that we, we touched on as well was the expense of these trainings. Not yours particular. That's why you started this, but all other trainings, so many other trainings, I should say. I don't know about if it's all of them, but they're super expensive. So many people can't even afford to get them. As we've also talked about, uh, mental health clinician salary is is not you know you know six digits a year to say the least. And right. so, so and you know, what are you doing? I guess go ahead and talk you know, about that. How you started your 
these programs so people can afford them? So Charmette's Counseling has started a program called Therapists Helping and Nourishing Knowledge Sharing because the cost of training is prohibitive to a lot of people that, you know, by the time you get to your take-home pay after taxes and insurance and everything, most people, especially people who are working in community mental health settings, don't have thousands of dollars the the basic emdr training people charge two thousand dollars for that you know i when i took internal family systems the the intensive training it was three thousand dollars and that was years ago so it's probably four thousand now that's insane And, and now you know most people that's just not possible so people People are not being provided the tr- the training and the tools that they really need to have a, a thorough map of, I know what to do. And without that, I think people do kind of get this deer in the headlights thing of like, this person needs so much help. I don't feel able to help them because I've not received the training and support I would really need as a therapist, particularly I think for people who are newer in the field, that's true and that caseloads are really big. So even if you are highly motivated where I'm gonna take an hour a week and lock myself in the room and, you know, buy materials on Kindle or buy trainings on PESI, which can be a little bit more affordable, I, I think it's a huge disservice to the community. And my hope in starting Thanks it is to address some of that, that it's Saturday mornings, so you don't have to take time off work. Mm-hmm. It's the cost of a donation. So, and, and we purposely did not put a minimum on that because it, if you're willing to invest the time, if you're motivated enough to take three hours from a Saturday, that should be open to anybody who's willing to, to show up and turn on Zoom. And I, I just feel really strongly about that, that things need to be more accessible. Accessibility is a huge social justice issue. And it's part of social justice that I don't think we're talking about enough. The accessibility. Well, what's the, because uh, this has been my struggle, Anna, the last, started since I've started Room 9 and everything. And even in my younger years when I would be into philosophy and Eastern Fly and all these people and meditation people, like people like I can't, you know, Deepak Chopra, who charged thousands of thousands of dollars like that always pissed me the hell off. And, mm-hmm. you know, how so I was like, so people can only get better in their spirituality if they have money. <laughs> but now now I started room nine. Right. And now, like, obviously, I'm not Deepak Chopra. He's got plenty of wealth. But now that I started room nine, it's like I'm trying to find ways to make money and keep food on my table and do that. So how do we find a balance between that? Because people need to be able to access it. It benefits not only does it benefit the person who's taking the training, it benefits all the people that trainee is going to be working with in the future. And it just it comes back to our time and the energy we put into things. We do deserve to get paid for it. We need money to do that. So how do we you know, where do we go about finding that balance? Um, So I think that's a really good question. I'm only going to speak for me. I started my practice about five years ago, a little longer than that. And I started my practice after I had a baby and I did not leave the job I had at Brylin to to go make a million dollars. I left to have a better work-life balance. Uh, and what that means, I, it, unless I become a liar to myself and I say, well, I can make $1,000 an hour, so why wouldn't I? 
if I'm being true to myself that that was about a work-life balance, there's a dollar amount that I made at that job. And I can say, I don't need to make $500 an hour as a trainer because I left a job that I was happy at making $30 an hour. And even with the cost of inflation, that means that my hourly rate really ought to be this. Mm -hmm. And that's not per person. That's, that's my hourly rate for that hour. And I, I do think that people get a little bit seduced by like, well, everyone else is charging that. And, and there's not a conversation about, well, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm. It doesn't make it a good idea. It also doesn't make it equitable or fair. And, and I, I think the, the social justice component is important. People deserve effective mental health treatment regardless of what your zip code is, what your health insurance is, or who you're calling for help. Yeah, and I think uh, a big piece of that, too, is that issue in so many other different areas, even if it's like creative work or business con consultation or whatever, it's not people's mental health. Yes, you have, a, you have to assume some responsibility. Yes, you have maybe somebody's business in your hands when you're consulting them, but it's not somebody's mental health, right? And every and, and that's a that's a really fair point. Everybody deserves an opportunity to get mental health treatment. And I think I mean again, I think a lot of it comes back to our our healthcare system is broken. The fact that people have to even have to have insurance. Well, if somebody doesn't have insurance, even think about ever going to get you know counseling or get, go see a therapist. So, so I'm only going to speak for Sherman's counseling. Just about everybody at the practice has what we have affectionately nicknamed the Bleeding Heart Liberal Campaign. <laughs> and and what that means is that you can set aside however many sessions or clients spaces in in your caseload where it's like this is for somebody that doesn't have insurance this is for some you know the the people who just kind of pull on mm -hmm. your heartstrings and and obviously you know everybody's got to like pay the mortgage and national fuel will not take good intentions to keep <laughs> my utilities on but the part of life is my goal at the end of my life is to be able to say I left the world a better place than mm. the world I f that than the place I found it, and that you know when you pay it forward, I'm I'm not going to be able to pay it forward to fix everything, but I can be a tablespoon of that solution, and maybe my tablespoon allows somebody else to say I'll do two tablespoons. Yeah, and that and that that attitude I think and people might argue against or whatever, but I think it's such a, a great attitude to take. It, it's along the lines for me of how I've trained myself kind of not to get pissed off, whether it's driving or something, just putting somebody in a scenario that could, that, you know, you would be rushing around in. And I think doing that, whether it's true or not, who cares? I think it really gives you a mindset shift as well. But mm -hmm. I think that's awesome. Kudos to you. I know throughout our conversations, you guys over there at Shermat's counseling have, are doing awesome things. And you always, I've always, since the first time I've talked with you, knowing you've had that heart of, I really just want to change lives. And as you just said, leave the world a little better. And I think we need more of that. I think, you know, you're talking about caseloads and I, and all of that and the bigger, the bigger mental health companies in Western New York and all over the world, I'm sure, that are, are kind of, I don't know, I don't know if they're stuck or lost or, you know, what's going on, but Again, I'm just kind of pulling my hair out trying to figure out how do we how do we change this because 
there is a lot of change. Obviously, that's why I've started what I'm doing. That's obviously why you started what you're doing. And yeah, I, I do think that there's there's more than there's a lot of pieces that are going to go into that. Mm-hmm. And that s- some of it is a policy issue. You know, the state created the Office of Mental Health that God alone knows how much money goes into that every year. And that they have the ability to say to the big companies, caseloads are maxed out at this. Mm-hmm. And it, and if they're, if we come in and caseloads are higher than that, you have a problem. So there's nothing right now in New York State about caseloads as far so, as how many? Oh, so it's been a few years since I was really in the thick of things in that. Oasis capped how many clients substance abuse counselors could see. I don't believe that that is true for the mental health side okay. of things. Do you know the cap off the top of your head for the substance abuse? I'm, I just, believe, I'm just curious. I believe that it was 50, but I'm not okay. sure. Okay. And it's, and well, you know, it's kind of funny. I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know, it could be because I was really in the thick of the, obviously the rehabs and all of that for substance use. I feel like so much of the time they go hand in hand. And, you know, I don't know what, what is kind of your ratio of the, you know, the clients at Shermat's counseling that are struggling. Do you get a lot of people who are just struggling maybe with anxiety, just regular mental health stuff, or is substance use always along with it? Um, so I think that's a hard question to answer. M- myself and most of the the counselors at Sherman's Counseling, we all kind of have our own like niche areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of work with trauma and with grief. And definitely for my caseload, there's always the potential, you know, I always ask about substances in general and alcohol in particular because mm-hmm. we treat alcohol like a beverage not a drug oh we i know that <laughs> <laughs> we do you know you can't go to a nice restaurant and order a line of cocaine as an appetizer we we treat alcohol differently than other drugs and, and that you know it's a depressant yeah I, I, that's funny i mean i think this i think about how i am with caffeine right now and how i have to constantly check myself on okay you're not buying you're not having an energy drink every day dude <laughs> like what what is your problem here it, caffeine sugar oh my lord don't even get me started on sugar anna <laughs> but yeah alcohol it's a legal drug you can go around and get it anywhere you want pretty much anywhere you want and that's insane and it's promoted it's not only you can go get it it's promoted to do so i remember i was trying to think how old i was i was married my daughter wasn't born so my son had to be you know pretty young we were about to go on a cruise and i was i met my wife in uh fort myers florida and her parents she's from fort lauderdale so we were over in fort lauderdale when we went to visit from buffalo and i went to fort myers by myself to hang out with some old friends and i think i had some like weed crumbs in my pocket and we got on the cruise ship and the dog smelled it in my jeans from the night before and so i was getting searched and the cop found it or whatever and he was like come on man you know, stop ruining your life with this, you know, have some drinks and all that. But, and I'm like, dude, did you just tell me to stop smoking pot and start drinking? <laughs> like, and that's the mindset we have about alcohol. Like it's cool. Get shit face all you want. That's awesome. But don't do this drug or that drug. So, so my stance as a therapist is that I have never met somebody with a, with a problem with substances who is now trying to get away from something else in their life. Amen. And 
we all, all people have things that they use to try to regulate how they feel. You know, when I'm talking to clients about that, I talk about how, you know, the healthiest version of me deals with stress by taking the dog for a walk. The least healthy version of me goes for the double chocolate ice cream. You know, we all have things, human beings do not like to be uncomfortable and we have patterns and habits around what do I think makes me not uncomfortable? And, and that <laughs> people are, you know, we want what we want and we want it right now, <laughs> which is what makes drugs and alcohol so dangerous for people is that it's immediate. I do this thing and 20 seconds later, I feel better. Yep. And I can speak from that from experience. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's it's a tough thing. And I, I bring that up all the time. That's one of my biggest things is people who use drugs to escape have it a little less unlucky or a little yeah, a little unluckier than people who use exercise or use Netflix or video games to escape. It's not quite as damaging because of that though, right? Twenty mm -hmm. seconds, it's instant gratification for the time and it's constantly I mean, that's really what at least what I got wrapped up in was chasing that constant oh, I'm feeling that, let's just say uncomfortability. I'm yeah, feeling that, how do I get rid of it? Oh, I know how I can get rid of it in 10 seconds. Cool. And, and that people are really misinformed. What the gateway drug is, is trauma. It, it just is. The gateway drug is not marijuana. The gateway drug <laughs> is trauma, in particular childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And that PTSD is a treatable condition. People recover from it and go on to live really productive, fruitful, joyful lives. But it takes a lot of training to really help someone to recover from PTSD. And that those trainings tend to be very expensive and time consuming. And, and that in a nutshell is kind of the, the cycle that mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to help people not get completely stuck in by offering what are essentially free trainings. The, the, the cost of the Zoom link is proof of a donation. And, you know, some people donate $5 because that's what they can afford. Mm -hmm. And some people donate 50 because they're doing better. And, you know, if, if you want the CEUs to keep for your license that the state requires, there's a $10 admin fee because we have a wonderful receptionist, but she's got to get paid. She she's irreplaceable. And that that's still easily maybe 20% per CEU compared to other mm -hmm. programs. Yeah. I mean, obviously just from talking with you and, you know, some other people I've talked with over the last couple of years, that's a huge, huge, huge problem. Getting people trained, getting people, getting that caseload manageable, getting people to, I think you mentioned, listen, don't skip your one hour lunch ever, because once you start doing that, it's a slippery slope, you said. And I just, you know, I remember that all the time, even when I was working in simple places like restaurants and all of that, you start skipping your lunch, you stop not taking care of you, it gets harder and harder. And as we mentioned, if you're not taking care of you, that stupid cliche saying that we're all sick of hearing, you can't take care of anybody else. And that perfectionism is addictive. So if you're mm -hmm. sacrificing those things because I've just got to get, you know, this person is going to be homeless or there's this emergency, your brain does produce a little bit of dopamine where it's just like, yes, I did it. I got it done. Yay. And um, that's that's not a good thing. No, you know, we wear it like a badge of honor. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that people who work as healing professionals, every day there should be time set aside for emergencies. And so are you like on a daily basis, do you think people should have time set aside? Or is it just, you know, I guess that's obviously that's kind of a subjective call, right? But, you know, what is like your recommendation for doing stuff like that? My suggestion is that depending on a couple of variables, I think all clinicians need at least half an hour a day. You need time to return the phone calls. You need time to to just take care of some things. You need time to go knock on your supervisor's door and say, I just heard this horrible thing or, you know, I don't know what to do with this case because I think they need this thing that I'm not trained in, that nobody here is trained in. Because one of the things that often happens is that people who are more highly trained end up in private practice where I can control my hours, I can control my caseload. You know, people would mutiny if at Sherman's counseling, I said, hey, we're going to treat whoever walks in the door because (laughs) that's not that doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think and, that's, and I, go ahead. And, and I, I think, you know, half an hour a day would, would really be the bare minimum that I think people need just, just to be able to breathe, just, just to be able to say, you know, that was a lot and I'm gonna stretch and I'm gonna go drink some water and I'm gonna, you know, I have time to to go through some materials and mm-hmm. and feel more skilled and you know when we feel skilled we increase our resilience naturally because it, you're not stuck in in this sort of frozen helpless state. Yeah, you have an idea at least of what you need to do to get out of it or to move mm-hmm. forward. And that's I think that's the again one of the biggest one of the most important things I pumped about you doing these trainings and everything cuz the more I dive into the behavioral health world, the more I have conversations with people like you, it's the more I realize so many things need to be fixed. <laughs> it, it is. And it's a complicated problem, but it's not an unfixable problem. Exactly. That we, we know what increases competency and it's supervision, support, training, a, and a decent work-life balance, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I understand, you know, not everybody can be flexible in all things. You know, I, I let all of the people who work for me, including the secretary, have control over their hours. So if one of my people is a super early riser, she starts her day two days a week at seven in the morning and God love her. She's amazing. And people will take a (laughs) slot with her at seven in the morning. And what that means is that, you know, when her kids get off the school bus at two 30, she's done for the day. And she then can enjoy her time with them and feel ready to kind of go back into the trenches tomorrow. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, there's no, there's not a good reason that that's unique. I've interviewed a lot of people. We've grown a lot. It's my interpretation that that's really unique. And I think it shouldn't be. I think it should be standard operating procedure that if you want to start early or if you want to have a four day work week or what, you know, we all have personal lives that we got to figure out that should be accommodated because it makes you better at this work. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think somebody, you know, if I'm playing like devil's advocate or something, somebody says, well, people will take advantage and 
all of that. But I, I feel like you weed those people out. I've actually found the opposite to be true. I think that if you give people the benefit of the doubt, if you say to people that these are the unchangeables, everything is negotiable except for these things, that people have really responded and they've risen to that challenge because you're treating people like a person and not like a robot. Which is which is huge. And it kind of brings me back to kind of back to the what I've always been kind of talking about in the sense of branding and authentically connecting with people and their audience. I think we make up these things and have these fears in our head. People are going to take advantage of it. If I let people make their own schedule, they're not going to do as much work. We won't be productive. We won't make as much money. We won't help as many people. You know, all these thoughts and all these scenarios that have not even happened yet play out. And I think it kind of goes back to we just got to jump in and do it and give people the benefit of the doubt benefit of the bout <laughs> benefit of the doubt and i read a quote or heard a quote i should say the other day by a clinical psychologist and he was talking about trust because this has been you know christine and i have obviously she was with me through my addiction and everything and so we had we've had to build trust you know and it takes a lot of work to do that and this the quote was basically to trust somebody blindly is you're being naive but to trust somebody with eyes open knowing knowing that they could betray you, knowing that they could hurt you, but you give them the opportunity to be their best. Now that's courage. And that just kind of totally hit me. Like we have to just start trusting people. We have to start helping people more and giving them the benefit of the doubt. And who cares if you get screwed over? I think that's the attitude we have to take. Like that's what we have to be aware of and be willing. And that's what vulnerability is. And that's what courage is. And that's what strength is to go into that and say, hey, I'm here to help you, even though you might not change. I'm always here. And that is what we need more of, I think, in the world. 100%. And, and that I, I think people, there's a perspective shift that's needed around that, right? That, mm. And that perspective shift is that I didn't lose anything in the grand scheme of things. Mm. If, if I hired somebody who I was very flexible with and I felt taken advantage of, it's a disservice to humanity to to retract from that and like i'm going to be a micromanager and that's never going to happen to me because i th i think you know boundaries create safety in relationships so if you're able to say upfront authentically these are the boundaries that i that i need for me these are the boundaries for the for the job i want you to feel safe coming to me if you have a case that is keeping you up at night you know if you're thinking about work when you're not at work, don't keep that a secret. It's it's okay to experience that most people in helping professions do. And, and that people kind of struggle through that behind closed doors because we don't introduce that to conversation. I think any organization that's dedicated to the service of others, that's dedicated to I'm here to help you heal from whatever that wound is. Part of practicing what you preach is being able to say, I'm treating my staff as well as I can, given these unchangeable things. And how many of those unchangeable things are that I I could change it if I absolutely had to? Oh, probably most of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. so Anna, when are your, uh, so you're doing them on Saturdays, these trainings. Is it once a month? Most months are once a month. Okay. In March, on March 6th, we're doing an advanced DBT training. And then the following week, um, 
Catherine Patty is doing a, a training on working with um, LGBT community okay. members. And, you know, every month we picked topics that we thought might be helpful for my staff and also for kind of the community at, at large. Um, right when we got permission from New York State to, to, to issue our own CEUs, there was a horrible application process to, to get through that. But then then you're done. I just surveyed everybody of like, what what do you wish or want? more thorough training in and because most of the people who are with me have you know 10 20 30 years experience what do you wish somebody when you were two years out of school had had done a better job helping you with and I got a lot of really good feedback and we just sort of went from there around like everybody talked about I wish I had gotten more training in DBT or acceptance and commitment therapy. I wish somebody had taught me how to really assess trauma, especially complex trauma and just different topics where it's like, okay, you know, I looked at my schedule and we, we kind of purposely picked Saturday morning because most people, more people are able to be there then. And if I know, if people contact me before the training and say, I want to watch the, like, if you record this, I would be interested. I'm just not able to, to be there in person. I can't issue CEUs for that yet. Okay. You, you need to get something else. Why is that? Because you have to, somebody could just say, I watched it. Yeah. So New York state requires um, that we amend our application to kind of prove okay. like, what are the things that we're going to do just so somebody doesn't pay, pay the fee mm -hmm. to get that. And then they didn't do the work. Yeah. That makes sense. Awesome. How do people like stay in touch with you can stay up, uh, up to date with when the, you know, the different trainings are coming out and you know what the topics are. Everything is on the website at shermatscounseling.com. The, the list of not-for-profits that we have chosen to, to sponsor are, are connected to each of the trainings. Okay. Um, we're also looking for people to nominate organizations that need a little extra help right now because some organizations have just seen demand skyrocket. Yeah, a lot of, I think, organizations are going through that. It's so funny how when something happens, some other businesses get trampled into the ground and other businesses get picked up and that balance constantly is, we're in need of, yeah, we're in need of a lot more, <laughs> a lot more change. And then I think if people were really able to say time, talent, and treasury, what am, what am I able to do that can imp improve something for somebody? That, that a rising tide lifts all ships, even between putting on the training and the things that go into that. I, I don't, my life is out of balance if I don't have three hours a week just to make the world a better place. And, and that that helps me to to remain resilient because I'm living my values that that if I say people are important to me, that you, you need to be able to kind of watch the videotape of my life where it's like, yeah, like that that rings true. You can see that thread woven in all the way. And that I, I do think people get seduced around, you know, I can make a lot of money or 
I can be an expert. I'm not interested in being known as an expert. I am known as an expert because I've been doing this for a really long time, but I don't want to participate in the model of it's $2,000 a head because I, I, I just think that's, I don't like how that feels in my nervous system. That feels gross to me. I agree. That's a great adjective for it because that's how I feel a lot of times when I when I think about some of the again, I think, you know, it's it's great if somebody can pay afford to pay $2000 for a training, but there has to be something else to come along with it. Like how do people who can't afford it who need this training in order to help other people? It's not like I need this training in order so I can, you know, do something for me, which I guess it technically is in you know, the the outer box of looking at things, but it's really to help other people. I want training to help other people, yet I have to pay thousands of dollars for it. So it's amazing, I think, what you started. I'm glad you reached out to me about it. I'm looking forward to kind of promoting it and getting it out there because I think we definitely need more of it. Have, have you had a pretty good turnout thus far? We have. Um, I'm extremely excited about the feedback that we've gotten. We've gotten a lot of attendees, and we've raised over $7,000 for area not-for-profits. Awesome. Oh, that's badass. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. And I am hoping that this program sparks conversations around not everybody is going to do that, but maybe somebody will say, you know, I'm going to have the bleeding heart liberal category where I save a slot for somebody who doesn't have insurance and needs a very low sliding scale. Yeah, we need to we need to start that movement in Western New York. I think that's where it starts. I, uh, you know, it's the, it's the city of good neighbors, right? It is. I, yeah, I've fallen in love with the city after I left it right after I graduated high school for a handful of years and came back. It definitely found a special place in my heart. Um, this this area, as much as as much as there's ignorance everywhere, there's a <laughs> there's some amazing people, and it's an amazing city. And I think there, you see a lot of stuff like people helping each other going around all the time. So it's pretty amazing. All right, Anna. Well, thank you for, I can't believe how long we've been talking already, but thank you for uh, taking the time. Thank you for thinking of me to reach out. I'm going to stay very much in touch with you about things. I, I look forward to that. Yeah. And we will, uh, yeah, I'll be in touch probably within the week and uh, you know, keep you posted on this podcast episode and just keep communicating with you okay. as per our conversation the other day. Wonderful. Thank so, you. Awesome. Yes. And I will uh, obviously, again, let you know when all this is coming out. Okay. Hopefully, we, hopefully we can you. get it out soon, sooner rather than later is my goal. So I'm okay. hoping before maybe the next training, but I'll give you a more precise date when I look at my schedule. So. Okay. <laughs> All so. right, Anna, I'll see you later. Okay. Awesome. Bye. Bye.